This is a CBC Podcast. This is unprecedented, the number of losses that we experienced this quarter. So we're just seeing this continued trend of our community members who are loved and valued dying. Hey, I'm Claire Bonnyman, and this is The Loop. Earlier this week, Edmonton brought conversations on homelessness and the opioid crisis to City Hall. It was meant to be an update on reducing drug poisoning and the next steps for the city's homelessness plan. It ended up being a powerful afternoon at council, where more than a dozen speakers shared their lived experiences and expertise. I'm Kathy Hamlin. I'm uh, with the Changing Perspectives team. I'm a community grandmother, and where I live, I personally have saved a few lives on the LRT at bus stops. I don't leave my house without a kit. I don't leave my house without my own first aid kit. And my traditional first aid kit, that's my smudge kit. Thank you for all of you who have the heart, the courage, the wisdom, and the strength to be decent human beings and do the right thing for our marginalized people who are treated like lepers rather than being recognized as people who have emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical illnesses. And while these two issues of houselessness and the opioid crisis are different, they're meeting in the middle and having a serious impact on some of the most vulnerable members of our community. To dig into what the community is facing and what the city's doing, I'm joined by reporter Paige Parsons. Hey, Paige. Hey, Claire. So you attended a memorial on Monday just before council for members of Boyle Street Community Services. So what was the feeling there? It was sad. Hmm. It, it's So it's a memorial, not so when people hear about Boyle Street Community Services, they think about services for homeless people often. And it is that, but it's this is a memorial for anyone who's part of their whole community that has died. So it's, you know, maybe people they've helped in the past who uh, got housing but then have, have passed away for whatever reason. And so it's, it's, it's a lot of the folks who died were homeless, but not all of them. I've covered this community a lot, but I've never actually been invited to one of the memorials before. And it was very sad just because of the, the volume of people that they were remembering. And this is just people who died in the last three months. And there were 118 people. So what they did was they had it set up um, in a courtyard kind of outside behind one of their spaces that they use. Um, and so they had several tables set up with purple tablecloths. And then they'd printed off photos of they had photos of almost everyone. They had a couple of people where they had photos of flowers. But so you are looking at all these faces, 118 faces. Wow. In picture frames, and they're all, you know, they needed a lot of tables, and it was, you know, two rows deep of these faces of people who died. So that by itself was it was just really hard to see. I mean, who are we talking about here? You mentioned that Boyle Street touches a lot of lives. Um, you know, ages range. Like, what are we talking about here? Mm-hmm. So uh, tragically, this is a pretty huge age range. Um, the oldest people who died uh, this quarter were in their seventies. The youngest person was a fourteen-year-old boy who um, died of drug poisoning and was found unresponsive outside in Edmonton. And so that one hit hit pretty hard for yeah. the community. Um, we know that it is sort of all over the map, but we know that it's more men than women lately, uh, staff told me, and that Indigenous people are overrepresented among those who die. You mentioned this isn't you know the first time they've held a memorial like this, so 118 is huge. How does that stack up? It is unprecedented. It is, since they started trying to, 
carefully track this data of people who died, which they've they've always done these memorials. They've been doing the memorials for a long time every quarter just to make sure nobody gets forgotten and everybody gets a chance to be honored and remembered. But they started tracking the data more carefully in 2020, and 118 in three months is the most that they've ever seen. Um, and they're pretty disturbed by that. A lot of the deaths are drug poisoning deaths, but not all of them. Some of them are related to just other social factors and uh, that kind of compound when you're homeless, when you're living in poverty. You were invited into that space. How do you navigate that situation and handle it as a reporter? Yeah, it's it's tricky and it can be a little bit uncomfortable at times because you're, you know, w- when we go to events, um, when it's something more formal and, and less said, like a press conference or stuff, you sort of know you stand over here. This is how you act. This is mm-hmm. what you do. Um, if you're at something where people are applauding in the audience, you don't applaud. But when it's like effectively a funeral, when people are grieving, um, you need to obviously respect them first and foremost. That's the the best thing to do. And so what we did was we spoke with the one of the, the, the drummer who was performing. He asked us, I was there with a, a camera person, and so he asked us not to film during their honor song that they were doing. So we, of course, um, abided by that, and then we were allowed to film some of the other songs. And we didn't film people's faces who mm-hmm. were there to mourn as they were looking at, looking at kind of the tables. Uh, with the photos, we sort of tried to do our shots sensitively and, and kind of abide by what they asked of us. Mm-hmm. And it's, I always... I've unfortunately covered a lot of very sad cases. Uh, I've been to funerals and stuff for work, and it's it can be um, overwhelming, and you can like really start to feel the grief yourself. But I try to always remember that my job is to be there as an observer and to um, sort of maintain my composure so that I can, you know, share this share this event with the public, and and that's a kind of a good way to sort of help yourself, you know, keep it together while you're doing it. And but uh, sort of over the years, I've learned to, you know, know when to participate and and when to sort of join in. And so I was off, they were doing smudging and, and I was offered to participate in that. So I did that. But then our, my camera colleague and I, we didn't participate in the round dance. We decided to stand back that they everyone did a round dance at the end. And we just observed and, and filmed that instead. Yeah, it's reading the situation. Mm-hmm. Right. Standing there as an observer alongside folks who know and care for the faces that are in those picture frames, how do they feel about all of these issues really converging on their community? They're sad and I think they're scared and they're feeling at a bit of loss. Like these are people that I see a lot at, you know, City Hall, at press conferences, that kind of thing. And we have like a professional relationship and just seeing them with, in many cases, like tears in their eyes and looking. I don't want to say defeated, but um, it was the most challenging kind of position I've seen them in. Yeah. Um, they're really scared. And a lot of that is due to the drug poisoning crisis that we're seeing and also to the houselessness that's in Edmonton right now. It's it's a problem that grew tremendously over the pandemic, and there is not you know adequate shelter for all the people who need it, and, and people are dying. My name is Shelby Suazo. I use she, her pronouns. I am the drug checking program manager with AWARE, the Alberta Alliance to Educate and Advocate Responsibly. And I am the founder and executive director of Indigo Harm Reduction. I wear many hats, including that as being a daughter, a nurse, a mother, a cousin, a sister, an aunt, a friend. And I'm also a person who uses drugs. And I share this with you all, and I disclose this because how are we supposed to 
break down stigma and shame for people who use drugs if we're in the closet about our substance use. I support people throughout their, the entire spectrum of substance use. I work with people who are entrenched in survival usage. I work with people who use socially and recreationally. This doesn't just affect our folks who are surviving on the streets of Edmonton. This affects everyone. I have witnessed a 25-year-old die from a very toxic stimulant that was supposed to be MDMA. I've seen a 16-year-old die at a festival because of toxic MDMA. And I've held hands of many community members while their partner passed away on the streets from a drug poisoning. The toxic drug supply is killing our friends and family, and I'm sick of going to funerals. We're several years deep into a severe opioid crisis. A lot of people have died over the years. Um, I think last year, 2022, it was around or more than 1,600 people. And for a while, they thought the numbers were getting better, but now they've gotten worse again. And we are seeing more records being set by month, um, according to the provincial opioid surveillance data. So it's not a problem that's uh, getting better and just a staggering number of Albertans are dying every day, let mm-hmm. alone every month. And like a young 14 year old too, right? Like it's doesn't seem to sit in just one demographic. No, it's affecting people um, across the province, across ages. And it's, it's just, it's everywhere. Boyle Street, obviously, part of their work, Boyle Street Community Services, they do provide these services. But as we know, they're kind of split up right now. They have a bunch of locations across the city. So as we head towards the winter and we head further into all these situations, what does that mean for the community that needs to access those services? It definitely, you know, there's maybe some advantages to there being, you know, a few different spots people can go to depending on where they're spending time downtown. But it's hard because a lot of these people are facing health challenges, they have mobility issues, um, to have to travel around to each different location, um, depending on what kind of service they need, it does make things trickier. And, and, you know, people who are used to just having to know, they know where they can go to get help. And now it's sort of scattered. So it makes things a little bit tricky. Yeah. And with that, I mean, Boyle Street says they're continuing all their services. Did you get the vibe when you met with some of those folks that they're doing the best they can, I guess? Yeah, these people are working very hard. I was speaking to one worker, Chanel Tuan, and she works at Boyle Street, and she's also an advocate with um, national and provincial groups for people who use drugs. And so she talked about just how hard frontline workers, both in kind of the you know emergency responder sense that we think of, and people with like more grassroots organizations like Waterkeepers or Boyle Street, all these people are doing everything they can, but they can't keep up with with what's happening. And something that she really believes and she wants people to know is that when we think of people dying because of drugs it's she doesn't she thinks it's wrong to call it overdoses she wants people to understand that it's drug poisoning because people think you know maybe they're taking one substance but it's been contaminated with something else like fentanyl or carfentanil and they end up dying we're we're all out here trying to um, make a difference but real difference and real action could come from the government and that would be in light in line with supervised consumption sites that provide for inhalation uh, safe supply, which the Canadian Association of, P- of People Who Use Drugs has been fighting for for, for quite a few years now. And, and um, it just seems that the only action that we have left now is for grassroots organizations, which unfortunately we've seen pop up over the course of the last couple years. Um, 
And so it's really not, due to the lack of government action, we've seen community action come up. But unfortunately, it's, it's you know, well, this is still the situation that we're facing. Because of her own life experiences um, and because of the work she does, she's really a big advocate of increasing safe consumption sites, making sure that they're there for injection and inhalation substances, and also creating a safe drug supply. We know the province is also looking at legislation that can be used to force people into recovery, uh, potentially against their will. So what kind of reception is that idea getting? It depends who you ask. Um, There's, within this community, um, you know, the folks I was speaking to at the memorial, there's a lot of concern about that kind of legislation coming into play and the there, there's a perception that you can't force people into treatment before they're ready and that, that that's not a great thing to be doing. And there's a preference for harm reduction policies, which is where, you know, you would ensure that the substances people are taking and the places they have to take them are safe so that they're, you know, staying alive in the meantime while they're using drugs. And then, you know, if they eventually are able to or want to stop, then that's when you give them the services. But the province um, is very keen on reduction and, and treatment focus. And so it's it's just a different model. Like we're seeing, it's kind of a, a different track than what we see in a province like BC. And because the opioid crisis is so awful everywhere, we're sort of still watching and waiting to see what happens, what's going to work and, and be successful. But definitely in the um, local harm reduction community, they're, they're not thrilled about that legislation. Albert Kozak, Alex Ghostkeeper, Alexandra Clausen, Amber McGilvery, Andrew Desjardins, Andrew Guimond Bone, Anthony Wallace, Autumn Rabbit, Blaze Audie, Bonita Quinn. After the event that was Boyle Street on Monday morning, council met, and there was a moment in in that meeting on City Hall on Monday when people stood and they listened to the names of these 118 people being read out. Uh, It took seven minutes, and there was a moment of silence afterwards, and it really did feel like you could see the impact. Does the community feel heard by the city when they have these moments, when they communicate these stories? I think that's a complicated question, because I think that in our city hall, you can see that there's a lot of empathy and compassion and concern about what's happening, and you can see it on the councillors and the staff, their faces. Um, they clearly care about this. They spend a lot of time talking about it. They spend a lot of time wondering what to do. But there's still tension there, and there's conflict about how things are handled. For example, there's um, an attempt, there's a, there's a court action at play right now with a few local lawyers and they're representing some people who are experiencing houselessness. Um, they're trying to get an injunction to stop the city's ability to take down encampments, um, especially during the winter because they feel like it's, it's unsafe. You're removing people's belongings or housing and they're trying to get a, get a judge to put a stop to that city policy. Um, and then there's also the city, I think, in many ways feels like they're in a tricky position because housing and healthcare that's not supposed to be a city's responsibility. But in many ways, those are the answers or the solutions that the people are calling for to these problems. But there's only so much money they have and so much jurisdiction they have to take action in those areas. So they um, often are calling on, you know, the provincial government or the federal government to, to intervene to help. Mm-hmm. As it is November, right? It's getting colder. How do houseless folks and members of that community feel 
looking at the winter to come? They're worried. They're worried because you'll see if you walk around downtown Edmonton, um, other parts of the city too, because folks are spread out. There's a lot of camps still out there, even though it's winter and because either, you know, not enough room in the shelters or people don't feel safe in the shelters, so they won't go there. Um, And Lena Meadows, who works with Boyle Street, told me that basically they're bracing for people to die of either exposure or die in fires in encampments. That's really hard to hear. Yeah, it's... It's awful. It's, and unfortunately, last year, a number of people died in, in fires and tents. So what's the sense that you get from being a part of that community, hearing them on Monday, hearing the conversations that have unfolded in the week since? What should people be looking for here? What are you looking for as a reporter? I think it's hard because it's it's just really sad. Like, it's hard to keep I feel like I've done a lot of these stories over and over again and it just keeps happening and with the opioid crisis it's getting worse and with the pandemic the houselessness got worse and so I think the groups like Boyle Street and, and the other frontline staff and the shelters like they're all trying and they're going to keep trying but I think until there's you know a significant increase in resources or changes in policy and stuff we're going to keep seeing this happen unfortunately unless you know economic social social like the big social situation changes it's it's a big tough learning problem and it's really tragic in the meantime so I'll keep covering it and and seeing what happens but it's it's hard to do Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you sharing it with us today Paige happy to Claire Jonathan Allen Joseph Mailhot Joshua Suse. Karen White, Keith Phillips, Kenneth Desjardins, Kevin Brand, Kevin Sandalin, Kimberly Bellum. The Loop is a podcast from CBC Edmonton, and our team this week is Leslie Goldstone, Corey Haberstock, and Olivia O. Our theme music is Change Your Mind by Edmonton musician John Common. And I'm Claire Bonnyman. Thank you, as always, for listening. The Loop is recorded on Treaty 6 territory, traditional lands of First Nations and Métis communities. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email, theloop at cbc.ca. Leave us a rating or review wherever you download the show. And you can find us on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.